He was a psychotic killer out of control. Until a rookie cop. Don't even try it, don't even think about it. Put him behind bars. Seven years later, Earl Talbot Blake is out for revenge. I got things to live for. And the moment he escapes, the nightmare begins. Remember Earl Talbot Blake? He busted out of a parole hearing. Now, the hunter is the hunted. because I sent him to prison. I'm gonna make him pay for this. Was it Blake? Huh? Was it Earl Talbot Blake? We'll see his face in the light of those cameras. That's when it'll be over. Denzel Washington, John Lithgow, Ricochet. Meeting once was a mistake. Meeting twice will be murder. to 30 years later i'm your host ricky camilleri we're uh and, and uh, with me as always it's chris chafin yes hello good evening lovely to talk you know, to you ricky i will say like if if you were doing the intro you could you're more than welcome to say with me as always is ricky I, camilleri ricky that was the most disturbingly convoluted chain of hypothetical logic i've ever heard in my entire life <laughs> I don't know what kind of nonsense you're trying to communicate, but sure, fine, whatever. All right, today we're talking about, uh, for my money, an unheralded <laughs> masterpiece of the 1990s. It is Ricochet, which came out October 4th, 1991. We're a bit of we're about a week late on this one because we flipped the weeks and did City of Hope last week because I misread an email that I sent you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> directed by Russell Mulcahy from a script by Stephen E. D. Souza, uh, story by Fred Decker, um, and it was a and it stars uh, Denzel Washington, John Lithgow, Ice T, Kevin Pollock, inexplicably. Kevin Pollock, <laughs> like, and they let him do his Shatner impression at a certain point in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and uh, it's 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 produced by Joel Silver. It was apparently originally a script meant for Clint Eastwood as a Dirty Harry movie, but Eastwood thought it was too violent, <laughs> so it was <laughs> Joel Silver. And then it was supposed to be a, a, a multiverse movie. It was supposed to be in the Die Hard universe. Really? It, yeah. It's, it, and the the only real way to kind of like know that is because um, Gale, the reporter is the same actress who plays the reporter Gale in the first movie or in ah, Die Hard. Okay. So they were, they were trying, but they weren't, it doesn't seem like they were trying that hard. It seems like they were mostly, mostly just like recycling <laughs> characters and stuff, but it is Joel Silver who produced Die Hard, which was a massive hit. And so clearly, I mean, trying to capitalize that on in, in whatever way that they could. Um, first and foremost, uh, I, I have, I love this movie. <laughs> It is so sleazy and depraved. Yeah, Ricky, I think what I said in the text to you was that it's a carnival of depraved fantasies, which I mean, right from the beginning, I'm just going to dispense with the plot really fast so we can talk about all the things that we like about the movie. Denzel Washington is a cop who um, uh, coincidentally busts a hitman who's about to sort of like take over the mafia through, through uh, a, um, through some crimes that he's going to commit, but he falls out of a window or, and, uh, and he gets busted by Denzel Washington. It gets put on the news. 
Denzel Washington over the next five, over the next eight years, basically gets goes from cop on the beat to district attorney. And watching this the entire time is the criminal that he busted, John Lithgow, who uh, has been paying attention to Washington's career while he's been in prison. He makes ridiculous collages, psychopath collages. It's very um, like die, Bart, die kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah he's except, basically except, Sideshow Bob, yeah. Except one of the pieces of the collage that they bring back a second time, which is like, is a perfect example of what like what this movie is and where yes. it is is yes. is a is a <laughs> I know a what magazine. you're gonna say and I'm so excited for you to bring it up, Ricky. It's a magazine cutout of Denzel's face on a like uh like a hustler woman's <laughs> body bent over. <laughs> and they don't just show it once, they show it twice. There are moments in this movie where like a depraved things hap- thing happens and you can tell the filmmakers are so pleased with it that they do it again for like seemingly no reason. Yeah, like you maybe would have missed it in the background, but you definitely wouldn't have because they make sure to focus on it. But then yeah. later on in the movie, Denzel like picks it up, brings it straight to camera. And it's like, you could see this woman's fucking vagina. Like it's yeah. like... <laughs> and then, so, so Lithgow escapes from prison uh, and his plan isn't just to seek vengeance by killing Denzel Washington. He wants to destroy his career. So he crafts this uh, conspiracy to destroy the man's image, to de- destroy his career, his reputation, his image, and and make him go crazy. Um, and then, of course, Denzel um, you know, figures out what's going on. It takes a little while for everybody else to figure out what's going on, and he has to stage a big um, action climax in order for everybody to see what has happened to him and as well to kill John Lithgow. Um, on the face of it, it's your pretty standard kind of like early nineties, you know, vengeance seeking action movie, but doing a race reversal casting, but I don't think that's all that they did in order to sort of tackle the ideas. There's like a whole other, like just the fact that at one point in the movie, when, when Denzel Denzel has started to have his reputation tarnished, he's sitting in his house watching TV and he happens to be watching an interview with a black radical who's talking about how uh, anytime an African-American man gets any position of power, conspiracies take him down. There, there's conspiracy. The white man finds a conspiracy to take him down. And then he takes it even a step further and says that like the white man has put HIV, has put crack in our neighborhoods. And then we cut to Denzel. Now, where he's I, I, what he it. actually says, Ricky, is he says they put AIDS in all the vending machines. That is what he says. AIDS in all the vending <laughs> machines. Right. And then, but then we cut to Denzel later where, you know, his his reputation has really been tarnished and he's trying to explain himself to his boss and he's ranting and he starts going into those conspiracies himself. And I think it becomes this idea of like historical trauma that he's kind of working through. Like, (laughs) I mean, Ricky, I I think this, this is a rich text and I, I don't think, there's I really think other, it is. I think there's so many layers of shit going on in this movie that I I am just I am my mind is reeling as to where to start talking about it. I was Are so you? pumped. I was so pumped right from the beginning with this movie because it's like so much is going on. It's got it's got a lot of personality. I mean, of course, Denzel Washington so is the star of it, right? But then so much crazy, depraved nightmare shit happens in the movie and it goes there so hard in a way a movie would never go there today and it's yes. it, it's a great movie to do on our show i'm so thrilled to be talking about it like what it's and they great. apparently they apparently had to cut a ton of violence out of this <laughs> after test screenings because it was too violent the movie is extremely violent. It's near like X-rated 1991 <laughs> violent. There's a lot of people getting shot with a shotgun and their shirt like splits open and all their guts fly out and they like th- propel backwards like 20 <laughs> feet, you know? And on top of that, there are lines in the movie, which again is repeated because the filmmakers just like the lines so much. Which oh my is, God. <laughs> Lithgow is holding a woman hostage with a shotgun and he's, and, and, and Washington's holding a gun on him. And Lithgow says, um, her boyfriend's going to need a paper bag when he fucks what's left of her. Meaning <laughs> her boyfriend is going to be having sex with her <laughs> dead body. What the fuck? Like what an insanely oh deranged God. thing to say, but you hear that in the moment and you're like, wow, that's deranged. And then we cut to Lithgow after he's been arrested and he's in the hospital and he's replaying the events in his head. And the first thing you hear is that line, like very loud, like the film like couldn't get enough of it. 
Yeah, like well, he's I just mean, sitting there thinking, remembering that he said that. You gotta put yourself in the <laughs> shoes of the character, like, and if you had thought of such a super cool thing to say in the middle of a police standoff, like, yeah, I would probably be lying in my hospital bed being like, it didn't go how I wanted, but I did at least say that one really cool thing. Like, that was pretty awesome. And there are some like other cool lines in the movie. Which oh my God, is, there's uh, so many. I found myself, I don't think ever with a movie that we have done have I written down so many of the lines of dialogue. Another uh, one here, of my favorite lines is, oh, uh, I'll do it really fast. Yeah, yeah, hopefully yeah, yeah. It's, Hopefully it's not yours, but the way that Denzel bests Lithgow in the uh, opening action scene is that he, he gets naked to say, I don't have a gun, I don't have a gun, but then he pulls a Beretta out of his butt and the scene ends <laughs> He shoots Lithgow, and then the scene ends where he says, Beretta in the butt beats a butterfly in the boot because Lithgow pulled a butterfly <laughs> knife out of his boot. Beretta in the butt beats a butterfly in the boot. Oh, my God. Amazing. So later later in the movie, there's um, John Lithgow has this sidekick who is very heavily coded as being his like prison boyfriend, but they never quite go there. But it, I think it's pretty much on, on the surface. But So at one point, they... Um, drug and denzel washington and they're gonna they're when they kidnap him and the the guy said picks up denzel washington and gleefully while giggling says i bet he shit his pants i can't wait to look (laughs) (laughs) there's another line um, in the in the prison where the guard says to lithgow like your parole hearings today you better make sure to floss and lithgow goes i did with your wife's pubic hair (laughs) He delivers that line too in this very deliberate, but kind of like, it's almost like he feels obligated to say something mean and the guard kind of reacts in that way. Like, Oh, you, you know, it's like, he just has a reputation to keep up. Um, And the guy in prison, not the person that you're referencing as like the possible boyfriend, but his, his roommate in prison who he hates is played by Jesse, the body Ventura. Oh my God. Who he has, this weird oh my like, god glad gladiatorial like gladiator like fight where they're like they've got um that's run by the aryan brotherhood and they've got all these like phone books taped to them they're or something taping, and there's this sequence the way that's photographed it is like knights putting on their armor it's like black background you know like harsh light just on them just on like a segment of like him taping a phone book to his bicep and you're hearing off screen the aryan brotherhood going like when two white brothers have a disagreement, gotta settle it with honor. <laughs> and then and they're then, getting their giant swords, their prison swords they have somehow. <laughs> and then um, he, like, Lithgow was like, seems like he might let this guy go. Like, he's gotten to the point where he could kill this guy or not. And it seems like he could let him go. But one of the pieces of newspaper that's taped to the Jesse the Body Ventura's chest, which I think we're led to believe is by accident, like he was just taping newspaper to his chest for safety, happens to be a story about Denzel Washington becoming the DA or winning a case. And he (laughs) stabs him in the chest (laughs) to stab Denzel. Ah! You know, stabs him all the way through his body, like into the wall. Yeah. Can can we just say though that like even in scenes where it's not hardcore violent, it's not depraved, like the the filmmakers clearly before shooting were like, what can we do to make this scene crazy and fun? Like even Denzel's closing argument when he's a lawyer. Right. Like he delivers a closing argument to the jury to convict this serial killer. And it's just to show that he's a lawyer now and he's a good lawyer. He delivers this closing argument that's a, that's manic. He runs around the court. I don't remember this part. What does he say in this? He He's like talking to them and he's like, he's like, I know you've been here. You've been here so long and you've drinking the bad coffee in the jury room and you're eating the bad food and you're going to go back to that hotel. And I know you just want to run around and scream. You want to run around and scream. And he, he runs around the courtroom screaming and everyone's like, what's this guy? What's this guy up to? Except it shows the serial killer laughing. Cause he thinks it's entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's I mean. it's like most movies wouldn't take the time to do like oh a God. bit, you know, like to throw in a bit there where it's like, even the serial killer thinks this is kind of funny. Well, there's like, I mean, what you're saying, like that they are trying to make it in their minds as crazy as possible at all times. There's a scene where Lithgow and his prison boyfriend are like, some parts of the plot are going wrong. They're very stressed out. And they're just having a scene where like 
we they're at the bar and they're saying like what the fuck yeah. are we gonna do but what bar are they at chris <laughs> yes ricky <laughs> what bar are we at the the opening shot of this scene is a woman who is easily 350 pounds completely nude with like her it's hair all greased under her head <laughs> leather straps and she's like doing this herky-jerky kind of dance and the person next to her is a, a, a little person a midget who is also nude and then we pan out and the whole room is just full of all types of people like this you know and then and they proceed to just have a regular scene where they're like oh man what are we gonna do about the case you know there's literally no reason for them to be in there no, there's just like absolutely no reason to be because they're the bad guys and they're crazy you know but the like, one, but the but the one joke that that is in that scene that is funny that is just like like a a throwaway and there are so many throwaway gags in this which is that the prison the prison boyfriend like they pull up to the bar and Lithgow is like what is this freaky fucking place and the prison boyfriend goes I don't know I've never been here can I get another round Pete because <laughs> he like <laughs> knows the bartender <laughs> oh my god it's so good it's so good and i mean even the like it even takes the time to let kevin pollock do his dumb kevin pollock shit like we're saying like yeah they let him do his shatner impression for no reason they're just having a scene him and denzel talking and denzel's like oh that's like that show you'd like to watch star trek right (laughs) and he's like oh man i was watching it last night (laughs) and he just does a whole kirk thing and then later on you know kevin pollock gets killed by the villain and Denzel Washington is cradling him in his arms. And the whole question has been, is the serial killer really alive or is he dead? Cause he's faked his death. Oh yes. And, and he's cradling him in his arm in his arms, you know, dramatic music is playing. It's raining. Another terrible thing has happened to Denzel. And Kevin Pollack looks at him and says, he has to be alive. How else could he kill me? Uh, and then he dies. <laughs> like, so good. What the actual fuck is going on in this yeah. movie? Every moment, every moment is just pure enjoyment. I, 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 I mean, truly they have, love this movie. That they have Denzel stripped down to his underwear. Denzel Washington in the like a most amazing shape of his life. And in the beginning part of the movie, he's supposed to be a young, he's supposed to be young, right? So he's got kind of like a high top fade and he looks fresh faced. He looks like a million fucking dollars. He takes off all his clothes except for his giant 1991 boxers that are like almost below his knee, but not quite. And um, he's got like cum gutters. He's got like everything, his pecs, his abs. He's got fucking everything going on. Um, but gutters. I was like, what are those? We haven't, we had this discussion on the show before. I think we have. No. That's like no, the muscle that, that's that's the muscle that's like below where your stomach is and like around your hip bone. Is it called a cum gutter because it catches cum? I, I mean, I would have to assume, Ricky. I don't know what else. <laughs> I don't know what else it would mean. <laughs> I, I know. I, I, I feel like a prude right now because I'm like, is it that? But I've just never heard it. And it's. I'm shocked. Come gutters. I can't believe that I'm shocking you with something, Ricky. Like, I feel very good about myself. This is another dedication to making the movie as crazy as possible at all times. That in this scene, the way that Denzel... Because what it is, is just a hostage situation. And Denzel Washington is a cop. And they're having a standoff in a hostage situation. How many times have you seen this in a movie? A million times, right? I cannot think of another time where this situation is resolved by the cop taking off all of his clothes and then pulling a gun out of his butt. Like what the actual, and just right away, Denzel starts taking his clothes off. He's like, hold on, I'm going to take my clothes off. And John Lithgow's kind of like, well, you don't, you don't really have to do that. I mean, it's (laughs) like generally confused. And yeah, it's amazing. But this is again, so as much as we're saying like, it's crazy and funny. I mean, there is some like, there is some thought going on in this movie too, because the the way that Denzel becomes famous and his career advances is that this encounter is caught on videotape and we see it through the videotape. And it's of course a cop and a person on videotape in Los Angeles in 1991. And you know, immediately you're thinking about Rodney King, you're thinking about police and you're thinking about race and you're thinking about the media and the way things appear through the media and of course you're appreciating for the first time but not the last in this movie that it's done this kind of interesting race reversal that i think pays off in many different ways where the cop and the the so-called perfect person is black and the the 
crazy sociopathic killer is is white. And as much as people play around with that idea now, like certainly in 1991, as our show has shown, they did not play around with this idea at all. It was just like the bad guys are ethnic, you know? I also don't think you would play around with it in this way. Like, I don't think, I I don't think a movie now would allow this much sleaze in a a storyline like this. You know, it is, it is all subtext, right? Um, for me, it's kind of obvious subtext, which is what I, one of the things that I love about it, but it is subtext. So therefore everything that is text is just like depraved and sleazy and violent. And it is interesting too, because Denzel is like at the beginning of the movie and through maybe about two thirds of the movie, he is, he's the perfect suburban, you know, upwardly mobile, like American dream. He's the stand in for the viewer, right? He's got the perfect kids and the perfect wife and everything. And the things that he suffers at the hands of John Lithgow are, you know, like what I'm saying, these like depraved fantasies of like, what if this happened to you? Like, can you imagine some sicko out there is going to make you some sicko is going to make you do heroin? You know, the kind of stuff that people like uh, that gets talked about in this kind of way, but like would never happen in a million years. But it's like these very dark lizard brain thoughts that people in the suburbs have, you know, ways your comfort could be undone through no fault of your own, you know, and and could you get out of it, you know, and that's. And but usually you don't see a black man starring in that, in well, that, that story. That, but that's but that's the, the subtext, right? It's completely it takes on a completely different resonance because it's a black guy, because it's a black hero. And because once once he starts to be undone, uh, and we were saying this before the show, it's like people very easily believe that there is something wrong with him, you know, and very easily believe that he's like on drugs and having sex with prostitutes and like maybe Child even a pedophile. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, there's a whole thing that he and his. Uh, like the guy that is basically like responsible for his career went to Florida and like <laughs> raped the children. Or did they were just like, did you use any public monies <laughs> like for child prostitutes? Is that the implication of that question? Like, like when they find this guy who's responsible for oh his career God. dead, he's hanging with like women's lingerie. He's like, Lithgow has set him up to look like he hung himself with women's lingerie on. And then there's a briefcase on his desk. That's just on his desk with yes. two child pornography magazines. <laughs> that's the only thing in the briefcase is two, you know, professionally printed and bound child pornography magazines, which I didn't know, you know existed. I don't know if I should bring it up already, but like, you know, you just watched the Siskel and Ebert on this and I just watched it as well. And Ebert, was like his thing was like I would be okay with these things coming up in a in a substantial movie but this is such a stupid movie like why would I have to deal with all this depravity and I couldn't disagree more more isn't like, a low to a cheap like sleazy movie that's exactly where you want to see this kind of thing yeah and I think the movie also is sure like on the surface or is like dealing with pretty complex issues but it's also just trying to be an action movie as well. I mean, isn't it, isn't there something more interesting about like a, a popular piece of entertainment that is subverting itself or being subversive by way of like recasting. And then at the same time, like kind of attaching these other aspects of, uh, of, of black manhood onto this, onto this character that would normally be just like a white hero. Right. <clears throat> and it's like, uh, and it highlights for you how neutered. So like a, so many action movies are that they they want to evoke these feelings of of danger and, and and peril in a sort of you know like neutered suburban audience but they they don't they don't give themselves the freedom to really go crazy like this movie gives itself the freedom to really like unleash some dark shit on you and then doesn't so that make dark. It, it makes it all the more meaningful when the hero wins at the end you know because it's not a movie where where you know in the end Denzel Washington loses or even where it's like a kind of draw where they both die I mean he wins he's vindicated good triumphs over evil it's like a fucking you know story for humanity going back 3,000 years you know and it the the darker the dark is the more satisfying the resolution you know right there's a movie a few years later where Denzel plays a cop and he's chasing Russell Crowe who's like a a virtual composite of like 
a million serial killers for or virtuosity like that. virtuosity yes, yeah. right and that movie has that is literally just sort of like denzel plays a cop we're not even going to play with the racial subtext of this whereas this leans in so fucking hard yeah. Yeah, and as yeah, we were yeah. talking about with that ebert clip like ebert siskel and ebert don't mention that at all it's almost like they don't they can't notice that this movie is about race unless the movie says it's about race. I mean, like, I, I don't such a know. specific aspect of 1990 and 1991 so culture, cultural discussion, which is that like this, no, this is just some dumb action movie. It's not, it's not about race a, 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 at all. Right. They need something to be like, uh, and this isn't, this is a, a good movie and I'm not trying to put it down, but they need jungle fever, right? They need right. like Spike Lee to come forward and be like, I'm making movies about race. They can't. This movie is this about stuff. the issue of race and we yeah, should talk they, about it on that level. It's not like, because that would mean you have to open yourself up to thinking everything is about race. Everything that features people of different backgrounds is in some level about race. And that's like that's too not... much. That's too much for them at this time. I think to think about, but that's, Sure, right. You don't want to do that. Okay, fine, 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 fine. You don't want to do that now. Fine, fine, fine. But there are parts of this movie where the 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 main character who is black, who is being taunted and and a conspiracy is 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 being put against him that is ruining his reputation, is watching clips of conspiratorial black Americans talk on television yeah. talk about how white conspiracies take down black men of power how and then when he's in the midst of being tortured by this guy and no one believes him he starts talking about those conspiracies himself i mean it's so clearly trying to play subvert these images and these ideas about how people were viewing black men in america at this time that this upstanding man suddenly becomes a crazy alcoholic coke and heroin addict that is like according to everybody else that is running through the streets with a pink robe on naked with a pink robe and a, and a gun right because this is what the this is what white america expects of him and it gets to the point where in the end of the movie he rejects them and he goes along with the black community that he grew up with right like it's all there and it's all am i opinion kind of obvious yeah. to be a cultural critic in 1991 and to be like no it's just a dumb action movie it's like, no, this movie's actually working pretty hard. And this is happening after the whole Marion Barry thing, which is a kind of very similar story in a lot of ways. Like a yes. very like upstanding, successful, respected black man who turns out to have a severe drug and prostitute problem. Uh, like that's a whole real thing that had happened years before this movie came out. And to just sit in 1991 and watch a movie that is, textually about you know ha like serendipitous video of the lapd interacting with the public and when that deals with white people and black people interacting with each other and not think in some way like this is commenting on that this is subverting that it is like you know turning it on its head in a certain way I don't fucking get it, dude. Let's, I don't know how like, you can miss that. Let, yeah, let's just like chart it out here, right? Black man rises to power in white America and an, and a, and a white man teams up with the Aryan brotherhood yes. to take yes. him down. Right. Th that is literally a plot Literally there the is movie. a fight underneath a Nazi flag where they're beating up a Nazi and talking about like, you know, uh, his like copies of Mein Kampf for falling off the shelf onto him. Right. And everybody believes you know, the, the, the bad story about this person rather than what they're actually going through. I, although, I mean, it, it's although pretty clear. I, I, I agree, and I obviously 100% think this is a movie that is dealing with race, and I, I think it's really interesting, too, and I maybe said this already, but the way that, like, first we're seeing Denzel as, like, the perfect successful person, and then we're seeing him as, like, a stereotype of a kind of, like, drug-addicted, you know, dis dissolute, irresponsible black man he's homeless he's homeless he's found homeless at I, one point in the movie i mean it's so interesting and and i think in the first half of the movie you're thinking to yourself oh it's so interesting that they made the good guy the black guy and the bad guy the white guy and that the cop is the black guy and he's perfect and successful and then when the bad things start to happen it makes it so much deeper 
that it's it's that the the reaction of everyone else to him all of his white colleagues and bosses is that nobody trusts or believes him and then he starts to embody this stereotype that everyone else is projecting on him white america turns against him he teams up with the black community that he grew up with who have now been impoverished and have been basically late like laid to bear and which and he turned strip mine which he turned back in this on white world right for white for acceptance in the white world when and then he goes back there and they team up to defend him right like the the politics are pretty clear you know there is a crack house in the movie run by ice t and denzel ends up teaming up with the people who run the crack house Right, 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 right. And that's the the climax of the movie. That's is another line I wrote down around this time in the film. Ice-T says to John Lithgow, you try to take my homeboy's dreams, now you're the one with the nightmare. Yeah, we laughed, we laughed very hard at that line. <laughs> it was very much an Ice-T line. It's so good. Delivered the way only Ice-T can deliver a yeah. line like that. It's amazing. Yeah. You tried to take my homeboy's dreams, now you're the one with a nightmare. <laughs> He's like the only one who can deliver a line well with like what sounds like a sing song eighth grader. Yeah. Like, right. tr- like acting yeah. in a school play, yes. you know? Yes. But yes. for some reason it sounds amazing when he does it. We got to get in the car. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> we got to get out of here. <laughs> um, you, know, I mean, you know, that's, that's, I mean, that's what he does, I guess, you know, that's what he did. But if you go back and read reviews of this as well, like not just Siskel Niebuhr, they don't, talk about this this is just really really wild to me i mean i guess denzel washington at this point like how much of a star was was denzel was this this is pretty early this is for him his, this is his first action movie like okay the, his first action movie that he's leading okay but he's he's already been you know nominated or, or for glory for glory okay yeah. right that's yeah. 1989 he's already done Mo Better Blues with Spike he's done Mississippi Masala Mississippi Masala comes out the same year Malcolm X is the next year well see and it's interesting too because I, I and, and this is kind of a complicated thought so I might contradict myself like ten times but it, I feel like in this time uh, Denzel is kind of embodying this like Sidney Poitier type which is both explicitly about race but also kind of raceless because he's like a type that exists in culture that denzel has slotted himself into um and obviously the movies that Sidney poitier is famous for are movies that are explicitly about race relations you know like guess who's coming to dinner right um in the heat of the night but at the same time it's like this he has created this stereotype of like the perfect black man that had just entered itself into pop culture and kind of untethered itself from the like context that it, it it appears in. So it's almost like Denzel is just like slotting into this role and people are just seeing him and not thinking about what's going on. Even while the film is very explicitly telling you it's about race. I'm still dumbfounded and shocked that like, it's actually hard to find a review from this period of time that will from 1991, 30 years ago that will that we'll talk about the, the the racial components of this movie. Although, we, I mean, to talk about it in a different way, I will say I couldn't help but think of like, um, you know, like cancel culture, like that kind of stuff when during the Denzel plot, because it's it, one of the dark fantasies animating this is like, no matter how good of a person you are, if people see something on the news that says you're bad, they'll believe it. And then your whole life will be ruined. And I mean, that is pretty resonant right now. And that is one of the dark fantasies running through a lot of the minds of successful men right now, right? Well, it's the idea that the news will make you and the news can break you, right? Especially if you're a black man. Yeah. That like, and you know, if it's on TV, it must be true. And the way that people interact with the media and consume the media is actually a really big part of this movie. And, you know, it's just kind of like, people take it in unquestioningly and uh, it might not always be correct. You know, <laughs> like I, I can't imagine that like, sure. This, the first, the original script was written by Fred Decker and it was for Kurt Russell or uh, Clint Eastwood who said no. And then it was brought to Kurt Russell and Kurt and, and, and that fell through. And then Stephen E. Souza did a rewrite. Right. And so I can't imagine upon the casting of Denzel that that rewrite didn't have like, 
that that casting didn't force like a different idea upon the rewrite. I mean, already the movie just on violence alone, just on dialogue alone is trying to push buttons. It's trying to be provocative. So there's no way there weren't conversations with Denzel about rewriting the script to be provocative in this way as well. And even the way they structure, like the thing that Denzel is doing outside of work is like, he's building a community center and having a telethon and with all these, I don't know, to me, it was a very like black coded kind of thing. It was not the kind of thing that white people do, you know, prominent white people are not like having a telethon to build a community center, you know, like that had to have been something else when it was a Clint Eastwood movie. Um, right. That, I don't think dirty. It was, it wasn't even supposed to be just a Clint Eastwood movie. It was supposed to be a dirty Harry movie. Yeah, dirty Harry is not going to a telethon to build a community center <laughs> with his friends from church and talking about how his dad is a preacher. You know what I mean? Like that has nothing to do with the world uh, of dirty Harry. Trying to get money for these kids. When I was a kid, everybody called me PK and it used to piss me off. <laughs> kids gotta go to school or else they get picked up by me. Um. Uh, the, there was there was oh there's there's also this uh, this movie in some ways also ties into Denzel as the person in in recent years. I remember when Trump was elected. Um. Oh my God, do you remember? Mm, Where were you God, when Nikki, it happened? I'm never gonna forget. Brother. Never gonna forget. Oh my God. Where was I? I was at like a party that was supposed to be a Hillary victory party, of course. That and got, you got sadder and sadder. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but nonetheless afterwards, or or maybe it was even before, but around that time when like, you know, you couldn't be a person in the spotlight without being asked about politics, right? A reporter asked Denzel about Trump, but like he either took it this way or it was kind of clear that like they were assuming that he doesn't support Trump, that he's not Republican. He's not a Republican as far as I know, but he also, I don't believe campaigns for anybody like i don't think he actually you know he doesn't get on stage with the boss and and you know say vote for a democrat but he basically turned to the reporter and was kind of like you're trying to catch me like you're trying to get me with something here i'm not going to talk to you get out of here and i respect that like i respect like you're not going to pigeonhole me you're not going to know where i stand on this so like get out of here you know and don't assume that you know how what i feel about this especially at that time, nobody's trying to catch him in anything. You can just say some kind of platitudinal anti-Trump thing or like, we all need to be in this together. And, you know, I believe in America or some kind of bullshit like that. To to react in that way makes it seem as if you are pro-Trump, you know? I mean, I think it's kind of like, I don't want to, I don't want to participate in white man's media. I don't want to be like, I don't want to provide a day of headlines about what I said about Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's what, I think that's mostly what it is. Like I'm not, I, I'm not here to do your job. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, I, there's something about where this movie ends up with his relationship to the media that feels personal to who Denzel became. I don't know if he was like that around this time. I can imagine the response to Malcolm X in 1992 hardened the shit out of him in response to talking to the media i mean uh, you know i was a kid i was like seven so i have no it's like eight i but so i have no idea but from what i understand the 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 media surrounding malcolm x was just so fucked yeah i mean of course i remember it being like such a phenomenon at the time it came out and like the x hats everywhere and all that stuff but like at the same time it was yeah the responsible thing was like well, that's like a radical, you know, we don't want to emulate that kind of behavior, you know, and obviously there's all sorts of crazy stuff in this movie about like white people trying to keep black people down as if that would ever happen, you know. Another thing about this movie that I thought was interesting and crazy and like dark fantasies is like, right. So John Lithgow is one of these like super predators basically who's like, you know, murdering people, you know, when Denzel Washington arrests him, he's basically committed eight murders with a shotgun and also did a hostage situation and all kinds of other stuff. And yet the first time we see him, he's in this kind of prison hospital and he's not, 
handcuffed or anything. He's just kind of like sitting there eating, taking pills and like rehabilitating himself. And he's able to get a bunch of phone books to tape to his leg to, I guess he's doing some kind of crazy ass physical therapy or something. Cause he's been oh, shot but even, in the knee. Even in that scene though, when he gets the books from the, from the bookmobile guy who comes back later yes. to get fucking shot. <laughs> He's like, hey, but, how you doing, Sonny? Remember me? And then How goes, are those books? Do you remember me? And he oh, just I really him. trust and believe in you, no matter what they say you did wrong. But when he's offering the books initially, Lithgow says no, but then he realizes that he can like, you know, tape him to his legs and do some kind of physical therapy. He goes, give me the biggest book that you got. And he goes, how about this? Tolstoy, Anna Karenina. And he's like, no, that's too small. And he goes, oh, okay. Well, it was his first book anyway. Like, that's what the guy <laughs> says. Like, and so he grabs War and Peace. And I, I forget if, do they, is there ever a scene where John Lithgow is like sentenced to jail officially? No, we cut to him in the hospital replaying the scene right, in his right, head. Right, right, right. And, and then, then he, he starts doing physical therapy on his leg. And then all of a sudden we cut to him in jail where he meets Jesse Ventura who who tries to fuck with him and, and right, let go. Right, right. And then there's there's just this current running through this movie where it seems like John Lithgow is not being punished. Like even though even though we do see him in prison, it's like we're always cutting to him. He's at the parole board or he's in the hospital, and it seems like he's being treated with kid gloves, right? And it plays into this very 1991 idea of like it's not tough enough in prison and like right. nobody, you know, these criminals, these super predators are getting away with everything, which I mean, this was a very real idea at the time. I just listened to an episode of a great podcast called criminal started by my college friend, Lawrence Bohr. It's like a big regular podcast. Um, but it was about a guy who in 1991, this was in Florida where I'm from. Like he, he was a teenage boy with his friends and they were going to go rob somebody and they were, he, they were trying to, they're passing this gun around and they're like, nobody wants to hold the gun. And finally he's the one who's going to be holding the gun. And so they go to rob these people and the woman screams when they show up and he just kind of panics and shoots her in the face. And then the woman escapes and actually lives and has surgeries and eventually is, is okay. This guy was sentenced to like three life sentences for this incident and is still in prison like to this day, I believe. And he was at 14 years old when this happened. And like, it's just really interesting to me to think about. Of course, he was black. Like, this is the reality of what's going on in the justice system. And this and then the portrayal of it in movies like Ricochet is like. Oh yeah, they're always hanging out in the hospital. You know, they're always about to let them out of jail every second. And it's like these two things reinforce each other. It's like because lawyers and voters and politicians are taking in media like this that's telling the story of people, you know, not really being punished for their crimes. They're trying to create a world where people are punished for their crimes and they were very very successful at that. And it's Right. Yeah, like, there's always been this idea that like, oh, it's like a country club, right? Right. They just yeah. go to prison, or they don't go to prison long enough, or you know, the as the offspring said, if you're under eighteen, you ain't doing any time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. The Whereas, kids are strapping fact, on the way to the classrooms, getting weapons with the greatest of ease. <laughs> in fact, if you are 14, you will get sentenced to three life sentences if you're yes. black. I mean, if you're the offspring. No, you are not going to do any time. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, this movie is, has so much going on, Ricky. It really does. I mean, the, the way that the, and I should have said this at the beginning, you know, like if you haven't seen Ricochet, like shut the podcast off and, oh my and God, like, please. go watch it and then come listen to us because we're going to spoil everything. It's so hostile. If you, it's so... if you haven't seen it, like you shouldn't know anything about it going into it. From the cover and from the stills, it looks like a cop movie. As soon as you start it, from the credits, you're like, oh, this is a Hitchcock movie because it's very like classical. I think the opening credit sequence is very Hitchcocky and it's this kind of like yeah. orchestral thing and these parallel lines coming, taking over the screen over this kind of like shadowed gray background. But then like the next scene is Denzel Washington and Ice-T playing basketball. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's you're on your, you're being knocked on your ass every second by this movie. Um, I was going to say the scene, the, the sequence where um, Lithgow abducts Denzel and takes him to this abandoned pool, which ends up not being abandoned, whatever. Uh, 
and he shoots him with heroin and coke and then videotapes him um essentially getting raped by a yes. prostitute that like let's go pace but like specifically a white woman yes and yeah and by the way literally getting fucked by the by white people right um yes. when the, she comes in she's like you know slinkily walking down the empty pool down to him and he's completely dosed out on you know speed balls and he's managing to say no please don't do this don't please please Susan, i like it when they beg she goes Mm, I love it when they beg. Like, what is this woman? She's not just a prostitute. She's like an evil prostitute who apparently does stuff like this all the time. Like, I, like, I don't know where pe- like people's heads were in 1991 that they wouldn't watch this and be like, this is a cut above everything else coming out right now. Like, this is doing everything it can to like punch through the noise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. You just take it in. I mean- Obviously, so much of the culture was coarse and violent and insane and racially tinged in a way that was people weren't really questioning. But like, oh, that's interesting. Is... So you think this movie, you think this movie, thirty years later, it, it has just like a different resonance and holds up even better than maybe it did when it upon release. Well, I think. So. Well, I I think I think that all the intentions we're attributing to the movie are true and real, and I think it does have these intentions. I, I do. Think, I think it existed in a milieu where if you weren't particularly attuned to these themes you know every movie is like you know grotesque and you know violent and paranoid and uh has very a lot of like dark racial and class anxieties baked into it all the time but that's because society was like that but i think uh, this movie is a very interesting one to pull out of that and look at it again in 2021 and I think, well, I think I it just when, hits different, you know? I remember when we did Predator 2, right? And 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 Ebert said that the scene on the subway where Predator was on the subway and, uh, like, you know, killed some some ruffians uh, was reminiscent of Bernie Getz, right? Isn't right. that the Bernie Getz yeah, stories, yeah, yeah. the Bernie subway? Getz, yeah. uh, and that it was, like, a racially tinged thing. And to be so clued into that kind of um sort of like racial subtext that is like maybe intentional maybe not intentional on the part of the filmmakers you know mm-hmm. but to not be clued into this is to me is kind of like you're not what you i don't think you were actually watching this this movie yeah right like this is one of the ones where he got there 20 minutes late and ate a bunch of popcorn and you know wasn't chinese food it was often chinese food fell asleep at some point and woke up again because in his mind he's like oh yeah some cop movie you know killer cop they're fighting you know blah blah yeah pretty boring um so chris what was your favorite part of the movie oh my god ricky i know we all we've done is say quotes from this movie but literally the my favorite moment of this movie is there's a part towards the end where denzel's life is falling apart and uh he's back home with his family but his family's scared of him he's still obviously coming oh yes i know what you're gonna say doped up on heroin for uh, days or whatever and we start the scene in a tight close-up on denzel with his eyes closed he's asleep passed out he starts awake and he goes lock him up <laughs> oh my god i laughed so hard ricky i don't know the last time i laughed that hard at a movie and it completely goes by with no explanation it's never referenced again it's just like oh you know he's like a da like that's the kind of thing he would say um i i was thinking about uh i thought that you were going to say the scene where he comes storming into the house to get the get his kid his wife and kids oh, yes and his yeah. wife thinks that he's crazy and he's telling them and he he grabs her and he goes i'm not crazy i'm not insane get in the car <laughs> he's wet he's soaking wet he's going like get my gloves the insulated ones in an interesting yeah, yeah. presage of oj simpson you know and he's and my boots where are my boots he's like just do it (laughs) you know (laughs) his family is like around the tv watching like the alf christmas special or something and he bursts in screaming all this crazy shit um i have a really hard time picking my favorite part of this movie um god i'm just gonna list a bunch i'm sorry i just can't do it i mean we've talked about all of them already but so i'll just do it briefly but 
right off the top when Lithgow says you're gonna they're gonna have to put a paper he's gonna her boyfriend's gonna have to put a paper bag over her head when he fucks <laughs> left of her. I just feel like that's such a like the door suddenly opens to the movie with that line. And you're either like you're either going in or you're shutting it. Like yeah. that's it. Like you know, especially when they repeat it. Oh that, my god! Oh when my he god. kills when he kills Jesse Ventura. I mean, I really love Denzel's closing argument monologue. You, Chris, if you don't remember, you should go back and rewatch it. It's very weird, especially <laughs> the fact that the serial killer like laughs in enjoyment at Denzel's and what a weird Uh, choice by a film what a weird choice um I think also I I do love when uh Lithgow's in the prison hospital and his like friend is sneaking around in the back like mixing medical files and I was thinking (laughs) to myself like they let the prisoners play with the medical files. That just seems ridiculous. Again, Ricky, this is just, it's a, they have it so easy in there. You know, these prisoners, yeah. they do whatever they want. Um, God, that, uh, I do. I love when Denzel goes to the, uh, his boss's office and he's trying to tell them that like, you know, Earl Blake Lithgow is alive and it's not a conspiracy. And he starts ranting and sounding like, what he's afraid right. they'll yeah. they think he'll sound like as a black guy. Let's let's think, say I'm guilty. I mean. No, There's... I'm not guilty, but let's say that I'm guilty, okay? Yeah. Right. And the whole idea is that he's doing this because he's scared that they that they think he sounds like this. So of course he's sounding like this because he can't actually break through the layers of like all, all those different sort of like pressures that that, that he's under, right? Because it's not as easy for him. The movie's actually talking about these things and playing with them and somehow it's over everybody's head in 1991 ricky obviously like all the movies we're gonna do are from the 90s like what did you think was the most 90s part of this absolutely bonkers masterpiece i think the most 90s thing about it is how violent it is like i just don't think uh a studio movie would be this violent now you would maybe get a I mean, you get like The Departed in 2006, but I can't think of anything, you know, in the last 10 years or so that's like a real studio movie that, that has this much weight and money behind it and looks this this great no and way. is this also depraved and violent. Like, I just don't think you would you would get that. I mean, that's Joel Silver. That's 19... That's the early 90s and the money that they had to make these movies. But I mean, I, it would I have to be like that. a Nick Reffin movie, right? To have anywhere close to this level of like dark, violent imagination. And it, then it wouldn't have the kind of mainstream gloss that it has. You know, it would be so self-consciously right. arty, you know? Right. And it wouldn't have the money behind it to be anything but self-consciously arty. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, this is not as deep of an answer, but like, a major supporting very deep (laughs) well yeah buckle in brother (laughs) like um, just uh, the fact that it has a major supporting role from ice t i mean like come on oh yeah nowhere outside of the early to mid 90s are do you get shit like that and you know honestly like ice t looks like a million bucks he's playing his part really good i mean he's he's, so great he's great in the movie you know like yeah he's 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 in the opening scene this basketball scene which is like really kinetic and fun you know and you he seems like a nice guy but also you kind of like get the image that he's like a criminal and a thug but like you know it pretty much he seems cool and then when he comes back in later on as the sort of as the heavy as the like you know the connection to the old world which again this is a dynamic you see in like I mean, in The Departed, right, where it's something like that. And The Departed is, of course, based on a Hong Kong movie. So it's like this kind of world spanning dynamic of like, you know, the duality between cops and criminals and, you know, the old neighborhood. I mean, it's almost like, you know, The Godfather or something, right? But um, he's great. He does a fucking great job. But he's also still iced tea, and he's talking like he's rapping, and he's you know doing his. He's like all almost all of his lines are delivered like kind of straight to the camera, you know, like. And the movie closes. The credits are have an iced tea song playing over immediately, them too, which, which was obviously in his contract, right? One hundred percent, and it's awesome. It's even better for it because the movie ends. We didn't even say this. Like the movie ends oh on a black screen with. Denzel telling a reporter to kiss his ass. Like he's like, Hey Gail. And then the movie cuts to black and he goes, kiss my ass. And then the credits start and the iced tea song kicks in. And again, it's so, it's, awesome. so, it's so on the fucking nose as far as like the movie being about like the media. Cause it's like, we're watching this live shot of the crazy news that's just happened. And Denzel walks up and he's like, 
enough and like clicks off the camera That's right. like so 90s so 90s so on the nose right but like somehow this is not what people talked about when they reviewed this movie it's been 30 years since this movie came out what do you think we've grown out i mean a fucking lot ricky but i mean i think one thing that's like real easy to pick out is in the um in the like bar of freaks like sequence first of all there is no bar of freak sequence because there's no such thing as a freak you know that wouldn't exist it would maybe be like people in latex outfits or something but it wouldn't their physicality would not be what was freaky about them it would be some kind of choice that they were making um but there is in this sequence of like a a transvestite you know a, a trans person and like you're supposed to think that that's like an unbelievably freakish thing that there's a a trans person in this scene and it's like uh, okay you know like that's that's yeah. not really that's not that bad that's uh, probably the number one the number one thing that we've grown out of i think yeah the idea and also that being maybe trans like, is some kind of like the world's craziest thing like what a depraved bunch of animals you know and also the 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 sex worker giving him the clap oh my god and also just the whole idea of the sex worker not being like a vulnerable human person who chooses or it, or maybe doesn't choose to be a sex worker, but that she's some kind of evil monster who's like out there to do evil in the world through her job as a prostitute. That is terrible. But I do have to say that sometimes like when I watch like a, like Eastwood movie, like dirty Harry movies or something, or even like some of the sleazy B movies of the eighties, you know, the fact that they're reactionary right-wing fantasies like kind of makes them more fun. Like I don't have to believe these things. I don't yeah, have to yeah. like espouse them in any way, but you know, um Kinjite, the 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 Bronson movie where he's a sex cop or you know like uh, investing sex crimes is deeply is a deeply fucked up reactionary right-wing fantasy and it is so much fun to watch because of it. I mean, they just have a very aggressive and well-defined worldview. And it it makes for a very interesting film to watch these people allow their id to run wild and show you all the things they're afraid of. It's deeply instructive and like very weird and sad and entertaining. Yeah. What, what do you note, think we've grown out of? Did, did, oh, I think I I thought I kind of... You didn't say. You didn't say, you fucking coward. <laughs> I think we've we've talked about this before. I'll say that I think we've grown out of subtext. Oh, really? I mean, we have in a certain way, right? You know, I and I think I think we're, you know, we're worse for it uh, in a lot of ways. In some ways, I think we're better because we're, 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 um subtext in a way i've been thinking about this lately and, and i'm going to try to form i'm going to try to articulate this but sometimes i feel like subtext in a way is a privilege because it's kind of like the like art explored from people who don't actually experience those things as text as like the day-to-day oh. aspects of their lives so of course like as a as a white man i'd be like oh i'd prefer it to be subtext and for like you know the action and the story to be the 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 you know, the, the, the text, but for, for, for a lot of other people, this who are getting, finally getting the chance to tell their stories, marginalized people, the, the, the subtext has been text for them their whole lives. Right. Yeah. That said, that said, it is more fun for me. I don't know if that's because of my privilege or whatever to watch a movie that is an action movie first, and then is trying to subvert that through subtext. And right. it also seems, in my mind, to require a little more work, but on the writer's parts, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, because things are happening, and you're supposed to be processing it on like several levels at the same time. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, and I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting to make a movie like this that is like, it's not saying this is a movie about race, but it it is a movie about race. What it's saying yeah. to you is like, this is a th- cop thriller that has a big action movie, but really what you're watching is a movie about, you know, racial dynamics in America, you know? Well, it's like Candyman, right? I haven't seen the new, the new Candyman, but the original Candyman is, um, 
a horror movie that takes place in the Cabrini Green projects in Chicago and is about this like the, this this African American man who was killed for falling in love with a white woman and now he haunts this project right so it's all about urban myth but that's there's a a lot of that is subtext and the text is that this white woman is is being kind of terrorized by this by this historical mythical figure and the race component is there but it's also like this horror movie first where is i've heard the new one i haven't seen it is very much bringing those that subtext to the forefront and i don't know i can't say if it's if it's if it's good Mm -hmm. or bad i do know that for me as like a as a as a viewer what was so much fun about Candyman was discovering the subtext. Right, right. What was so much fun about Ricochet is discovering the subtext of it, right? It's not fun to discover the the you don't feel like you're really doing work as a viewer or or or, or there's no sense of discovery. And it doesn't or play encourage when it's just text. It doesn't encourage yeah. your your thinking, you know? It doesn't it doesn't make you like reflect on these issues at all if the film is just hammering you over the head with them. If anything it makes you kind of like screen them out because you're within one minute of the movie you're like okay i get it like it's a movie about race like okay can we just like watch this movie and like see what's going to happen in this movie whereas at this movie every you know 10 minutes or so you're like oh this is actually like a really interesting commentary on race in this dumb movie and then it's like well yeah no shit that's they made it that way it's not an accident you know but you feel like you're making some kind of discovery as a viewer you know uh on that note ricky like what a fucking great movie is so much fun to movie. talk about. What like, a great movie. I, oh my God. I, I would, really I will, I would, I would like to do a podcast solely about ricochet. Like, God. you know, they have, they have, they have like the heat minute. Mm-hmm. We should do the ricochet minute <laughs> oh or just like every, every week we just talk to a new person that we convinced to watch ricochet. Oh like right now, my friend is watching it and he immediately wrote back. I will always love Denzel at Lithgow for this. <laughs> yeah. 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 Great to talk to you, brother. What an Good episode. To talk to you. What a good one. All right.